Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On this week's program, we'll talk about how empathy is enhancing the patient and provider experience. There is some research out there that relates empathy to physician well-being. Physicians who have good emotional and physical well-being are actually more empathetic. Plus, we'll discuss pediatric brain and spine tumors. Doing a good neurologic exam, trying to get the sick child who looks like they have the flu off the table. Can they walk? If you really listen to the story, they often give you the diagnosis. And how to avoid holiday health hazards around the home. Again, sadly, like to think of, of gift giving as being happy, but we do encounter again at the Poison Center some pretty sad situations around gift giving. We'll get a selection from our healing muse, and that's all coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On this week's show, we examine the latest information about tumors of the spine and brain in children. Plus, how to keep your family safe from hazards during the holidays. But first, the importance of empathy in the healing process for both patients and healthcare providers alike. Well, in the current healthcare climate, with the emphasis on cutting costs while maintaining quality, some have suggested that the quality of the healthcare provider patient interactions have been declining. Here to help us understand the role of communication and empathy in the care of patients is Dr. Louise Prince. She's Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Prince. Thanks so much for coming in. You're welcome. So with all the costs, you know, pressures to see patients quickly in the outpatient setting and to shorten hospital stays wherever possible, do you think that communication has suffered and thereby affected the patient healthcare provider relationship? Yes, I do think it has suffered. I think we are being asked to see a higher volume of patients in shorter periods of time, which doesn't allow for a more extensive relationship and extensive time of communication. So now our communication really has to be excellent but succinct because we don't have as much time with each individual patient encounter. Some of the research that I came upon just in preparing to talk with you about this suggested that effective communication patient to provider really has a a tremendous um, relationship to higher patient satisfaction, better adherence to medications, lower likelihood of mistakes, just generally for improving the patient's overall outcome. Has that been your experience as well, when you feel like the communications are really strong and good? Yes, I think you bring out some really important parts. First of all, if a patient trusts you and feels that you're empathetic, they're more likely to reveal important information to you that they might withhold from a provider that they don't trust. They're also more willing to comply with the directions that you give them, 
with the instructions that you give them, the medications and so forth. And I think there is some ample research that shows that patients who feel their providers are more empathetic are more likely to have better outcomes with their illnesses. So you went from communication to empathy, and that's very interesting because obviously that's a very important component of what we want to talk about today. Why empathy? Why does empathy matter? I think empathy is a bit different than what we would classically call sympathy. Empathy is walking in the patient's shoes. It really is um, feeling the world from their perspective. How would you feel if you were sitting in the bed, if you were the patient, and you could really relate that out to anybody else? How would you feel if you were the store clerk or your relative? It's really walking in their shoes and understanding what's happening to them and how they feel. I think that's different than sympathy, which sometimes can be um, more of a sense of pity, but it can also be uh, compassionate as well. So it's obviously good for patients, for the physician to be able to see the world through their eyes, one would say, and perhaps not get hung up too much in being feeling sorry for the patient, but on the contrary, being able to understand what they're going through, feel what they're going through. But I guess it must also be good for the healthcare providers. Is there some research or some evidence to suggest that it's also good for the, the doctors and or any healthcare provider? Yes, there is some research out there that uh, relates empathy to uh, physician well-being, that physicians who have good emotional and physical well-being are actually more empathetic, and vice versa, that it may uh, improve your job satisfaction and also reduce, reduce your burnout. As you can imagine, in this healthcare environment, with such high volume and very stressful patient care, our burnout level in uh, the world of providers is very high. So generally, it's good for both. I mean, it, empathy in that in the healthcare environment really does support the physician slash healthcare provider and the patient at the same time. Absolutely. It really has a very strong impact on both. But why, given, you know, beside the time pressures that we're talking about, what other factors may interfere with it? Why would there be empathy lacking today? I mean, is it, does it go back to training? I mean, is there an attitude that it's undervalued, maybe even disdained in some circles? Tell us about what you're thinking. Well, I think, first of all, you have to reflect on the training in general. There is a high volume of information uh, trying to be transmitted and learned in a very short period of time. There's also a substantial amount of fatigue involved uh, in prolonged physician training and residency. And I think with those two things, you can see why your empathy would slowly ebb away as you are really concentrating on um, completing your job tasks, seeing this very large volume of patients, and managing an enormous amount of clinical information. So I do think it can be lost in our training. And I think in times past, there are certain specialties that emphasized empathy, and there are some that really emphasized a more technical aspect of patient care. So I believe you've brought up some important points that empathy can be if you will, lost, but lost, not intentionally lost, but lost throughout the time with all of the pressures underway. Furthermore, it sounds to me like today with, you know, the, it's what's been shown is that 
when physicians are trained or they come out of training, quite often they may have started, as you said, with more of a, of a feeling of empathy, and maybe that was the impetus to even go into the field of medicine. Once they're actually out there doing what they have to do with all the pressures they experience, the, that seems to wane. And it's been evidenced by the fact that people will, um, when a patient is explaining how they feel, quite often be interrupted and, and cut off so that there's been a lot of um, a lot of evidence for the fact that it is lacking and and as as you said before even in the training that it becomes undervalued maybe undertaught so um, obviously we have to address it in some way how would you begin to address that i think there's actually a national initiative underway to address it we are seeing it in a lot of medical school curriculums now, including our own here at Upstate. I know that, um, for instance, the Department of OBGYN has introduced some initiatives for patient shadowing. And inside our own Department of Emergency Medicine, we have begun some initiatives for patient shadowing of our medical students. I, if you look throughout the literature, there are quite a few medical schools now who have incorporated this into their curriculum. And we also see a number of residency programs that are beginning to incorporate this into their curriculum. So it's really, it's becoming something that people are recognizing as having a potential win-win for both patient and provider. Yes, I, I, I believe so. And I think you've hit the nail on the head. It's both the patients and the providers who can um, experience the good aspect of retraining. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with emergency medicine physician Dr. Louise Prince. We're talking about the importance of empathy in health care. So you mentioned that it's being done. So I guess the question is, I mean, in medical training, can it be taught, I guess is the question. Is this a skill that requires a certain personality type, certain um, innate uh, tendencies, trends, you know, uh, personality traits, or is this something that really can be taught? I believe that it can be taught. I do think there are a number of medical schools have really have instituted some very innovative and creative solutions for this. And I think the question is, is if we teach it and we do improve, can we sustain that throughout the clinician's lifetime? So I believe we're right at the beginning. There are some uh, medical schools that are further advanced with this, but again, it's a creative solution. These aren't simple things like teaching anatomy. This is different. This is teaching emotional maturity. Emotional intelligence in a way, what they call EQ. I mean, the ability to recognize. Now, you had mentioned to me before we sat down for this interview that there is a, 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 a cute a little kind of way of looking at empathy some of the ABCs of empathy. Would you share those with us really briefly? Yes, I think there are some really simple skill sets or tools that you can use. A stands for really awareness, and it's awareness of yourself. For instance, I'm feeling really stressed right now. I haven't eaten, and I haven't taken care of my own self-needs. But also awareness of the patient, uh, the, what the patient is going through, perhaps their education level, and also awareness of the other individuals in the room, as well as their expectations. And lastly, awareness of the environment. My example would be the emergency department, a very extremely hectic environment with a lot of critical things going on. And you mentioned interruptions. And so being aware of that environment that you're in currently. 
B would stand for taking a deep breath before we encounter our patients and then trying to be present to them, present in this moment with them, listening to them specifically and, and being there for them. And in my example in emergency medicine, that is very difficult. You mentioned task interruption. We have an enormous amount of interruption in our uh, ability to communicate with patients. So reminding yourself to be present to them. And lastly, show how you care, make empath uh, empathetic statements, uh, rather than making, say, perhaps judgmental statements or even trying to dismiss what the patient's concern is. So work on your empathetic, caring statements and then express that you understand the patient's concerns and also end with a question. Always ask the patient and their family if there's something you didn't address, if they have further questions. That way you leave it open to understand what their concerns are and maybe find out that they really did not understand your instructions or your diagnosis. So in, in, in essence, by following these simple ABCs of, of empathy, you could really instruct someone to kind of develop a more humanistic approach to a patient. Really, in a way, it's a little bit of a recipe book, but, but those are very profound suggestions as to how to comport oneself in a situation like that. Yes, and I think it's all about uh, communication as well. Is there ever a time when you have too much empathy? I guess we've been talking about the benefits for both patient and for the healthcare provider, but I guess my question would be, is there, is, is, is there a time where empathy could hamper your ability to function, for example, in a role as a physician or healthcare provider? And is there a distinction between types of empathy? I, I, I saw somewhere alluded to the difference between what they called affective or emotional empathy versus cognitive empathy. Help us understand, you know, a distinction if there is one in that. Yes, I think that emotional empathy might become uh, difficult for us as providers. We do want to feel that sympathy and sadness in our heart for what the patient is experiencing. But if you are drawn emotionally into the situation to the point that it disables you, then you would not be able to provide the care that the patient needs and really function as their provider. We need to be able to also make good decisions and help the patient through good decisions. So if you were emotionally drawn in to a point where it affected your care, then I think that would be a negative effect of empathy. Yes, yeah, so they're really, it's a delicate balance to strike, especially if you develop a long-term relationship with a patient over many years, let's say in a primary care setting, the ability to maintain your objectivity while still being empathic, I think is, is a challenge. I think that's one. an excellent point, and we have seen that in many circumstances where the empathy for the patient may have overridden sound uh, judgment um, because you became very involved uh, with that patient. Yeah. So very little bit of time we have left. How did you get involved in this whole field? I think I had two or three different experiences. I do want to compliment a program at the Cleveland Clinic that they are working with providers to improve their communication skills and empathy. And that was very eye-opening. In particular, they had patients telling their stories there. But for me personally, it came from family members who were patients, and I was able to be with them 
especially my own sister who suffered a a tragic uh, stage four cancer. And I was with her in a very large, very famous cancer hospital. And I was able to experience patient care from the family and patient's perspective. And it was very eye-opening. And I think it really changed my impression of provider empathy. And did it make you feel that they were being sad, they were being empathic or not? I thought it was a real mix. You were able to clearly distinguish the providers who were empathetic uh, versus the providers who were not. And it was amazing how you could distinguish that in a very short time period when they were with her. Well, I so appreciate your coming in and championing, championing this cause and also sharing your personal experience with us. Uh, it's very, very eye-opening, but also very, very important. Um, my guest has been Dr. Louise Prince. She's Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, the latest information about tumors of the spine and brain in children. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. Cancers of the central nervous system, which is comprised of the brain and the spinal cord, make up about 25% of all childhood cancers. But the good news is that in the world of cancer, childhood cancers are still considered rare, making up less than 1% of all cancers diagnosed each year. And they're also becoming increasingly treatable. Here with more on all of this is Dr. Melanie Camito. She's Professor and Division Chief of Pediatrics and of Hematology and Oncology at Upstate's Golisano Children's Hospital and at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Camito. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for inviting me. So childhood cancer is rare. Tell us about that. So of all the cancer that's out there, only about 1% happens in children. But when you look at it in real impact, human impact, it's about, you know, 46 children are diagnosed every day. Outcomes are improving, but still seven children die every day from um, childhood cancer. And different than adults, when a child's diagnosed, their average age of diagnosis is six to seven years of age. So every child you save or cure of childhood cancer lives another 70 plus years. So when you're looking at years of life lost, more years of life are lost to childhood cancer compared to adult cancers other than breast, breast cancer. I think that's a very key point. So the idea that it seems like it's only 1% or we say rare, but the impact is very significant. Yes. So let's turn a little bit to um, cancers of the brain and spinal cord. First of all, are they becoming more prevalent? Are we seeing an increase in them in children? I'm not sure we're exactly seeing an increase, but, be, but there are certain subtypes of childhood brain tumors where we haven't made any progress. And so as we're improving the survival of childhood cancer in general, brain tumors have now um, surpassed leukemia as the largest cause of childhood cancer death. Really? So let's start talking so we, you can give us a little bit of an overview of the different kinds of childhood spinal and brain tumors that exist. 
So what you know, what are the most common or the most troublesome? So first of all, childhood brain tumors is over 50 different types of tumors that can happen in children. And the types of tumors that you'd see in children are very different than the types of tumors you see in adults. Um, half the children who have um, tumors of the brain and spinal cord have these type of tumors called astrocytomas. And the majority of these astrocytomas are actually low grade. So they're the grade one pilocytic um, astrocytomas or the grade two fibrillary. But when we say, let's just help our listeners understand, when you say low grade, help us understand what you mean. They're not worrisome, they're benign, they don't grow quickly. What are, what, what are the, the so issues? So the pathologist could look at a tumor like that and say, this is grade one, it's benign. But it's not benign, it's located in the brain. And oftentimes the problem with these low-grade tumors in a child is that they're located in very vital areas of the brain. They tend to be by the right in the smack dab in the middle, so they're going to obstruct how your spinal fluid flows. They're going to affect areas of um, intelligence, memory processing. As the brain grows and develops, they, right. they're an obstruction. But these tumors will keep growing where they are, and so they're destructive. And um, so they're not, they're, their behavior is not benign. So they have to be treated and dealt with. But they're often in areas where you just can't just cut them out without causing further damage to the child. I want to talk a little bit more about treatment as we go further. But in addition to the astrocytomas, what other types of tumors? And, and how do, I guess, what are the general ages? You mentioned most are diagnosed between 6 and 7. But are there infants who show with a brain or spinal cord tumor, for example? Or is it mostly happening in early childhood? So when I use the age 6 to 7, that's for all childhood cancer in general. Um, for brain tumors, actually, um, there's, there's kind of a peak before the age of 3 years of age. And, um, but they're present all through childhood and then through adolescence. And so um, you're dealing, so about a third of the children with brain tumor that, tumors that you're treating are under, you know, 3, 4 years of age. And so the impact of what you do is great. Very significant. Do, you, do we know at all what causes these? In other words, is there family history involved? Is there, is there more of a gender gap in terms of boys versus girls develop these? What are the you know, characteristics that, that we can point to, so if there, at all? There are a subset of um, childhood brain tumors that can be linked to um, some genetic disorders. So one of these common genetic disorders is called neurofibromatosis. It's a relatively common disorder, and they have an increased risk of um, brain tumors. Usually they're low-grade um, tumors, and certain terms like optic glioma tend to be um, very specific to the neurofibromatosis group. Um, there is a type of tumor called a subependymal giant cell astrocytoma that's seen in children with tuberous sclerosis. But that only accounts for a small percentage, and it doesn't account for very many of the cancerous brain tumors that we see in children. So when you make the distinction between low-grade and then, <clears throat> excuse me, cancerous ones, the cancerous ones, in addition to um, growing and obstructing, as you mentioned, with the low-grade, how are they different? So these are very rapidly growing, aggressive tumors that want to spread throughout the brain and spinal cord axis. And so even when you think about how to treat them, you have to treat them knowing of that behavior. If you don't treat a cancerous tumor, it will take your life quickly. So are the cancers that we've been talking about, the tumors that exist in the brain, similar to those in the spinal cord, or are they distinctly different? Um, so there are, cancerous tumors can have, primarily be in the brain 
that you can have a cancerous tumor that arises in the spinal cord. Most spinal cord tumors tend to be of the lower grade varieties and are amenable to surgery. Oh, so those are more maybe easier to get at, so to speak, in terms of treatment? Most of the time. But if they're cancerous, it's the same problems as treating a cancerous tumor in the brain. And how is that diagnosed? In other words, is it imaging mostly? Are there blood markers that can determine the nature of the disease? Or do they have to go in and basically do some kind of biopsy? How, how do they make the distinction between the grades? So um, most um, brain tumors are eventually diagnosed by imaging, so um, usually with MRI. But then to tell if they're a low-grade tumor versus a high-grade tumor, um, you usually have to get tissue to do that. Which so, means some kind of a biopsy. Right. There's a lot we can tell from the MRI. MRIs have a lot of computer capabilities to, to tell us a lot. They can tell us the cellularity of the tumor. The more cellular the tumor seems to be on imaging, the more likely it is to be a high-grade tumor, the more it causes swelling. If so we the, see evidence of spread, though, then we know for sure it's a high-grade tumor. So some of the imaging alone can really help with that diagnosis it, without an invasive procedure yes, in many cases. Yes, it can cases. be suggestive. It's not totally diagnostic. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with pediatric oncologist Dr. Melanie Comito, and we're talking about cancers of the brain and spinal cord in children. So it's often said that children are not simply small adults. I know that's kind of a, a motto of people in pediatrics. So how how are these cancers different in children than they are in adults? What are this kind of? How do the symptoms vary? For example, so children have have a different array of brain tumors than adults get. Um, adults tend to have the glioblastoma is the predominant brain tumor in adults, um, in and it tends to be located in the upper parts of the brain. In children, um, the location of the tumors is very different. They tend to be these central tumors, or they're in the back part of the brain. Um, by the cerebellum. And so the location is different. And if the location is different, the symptoms you present with are very different. And the symptoms you present with vary by the age of the child. The symptoms that an infant would have would be very different if you were 12 of years course. old. Right. So just in general, some of the symptoms that you might see, might you see seizures, for example, um, you know, a change in mood in an older child. So seizures are actually not a very common cause of a, um, a common symptom of a brain tumor in a child. Um, because these tumors tend to be in the back and the middle part of the brain, they tend to present with signs of high brain pressure. And so those symptoms can be morning vomiting, headaches. Um, eventually you will get decreased activity. Um, and in young infants, it's the same symptoms they present with, with everything else that they have Irritability. Going on. Irritability. Um, but when you get into the school ages, they, there can be a change in school performance. Um, Complaints of headaches, perhaps? Headaches. And the headaches um, tend to get progressively worse. Um, and How about changes in vision or hearing? Does that occur? Depending on, you know, if the tumor is pressing, it's, these tumors in the middle brain can... can affect um, vision. If it's cerebellar tumors that are located very in a tight angle can affect hearing. But the other thing is that some of these central tumors, they can be pressing on that master gland in the brain called the pituitary gland. And so some children will actually present with hormonal symptoms. That can be like they all of a sudden stop growing really? or they go through puberty too young in life. Um, and so signs of, um, ab you know, abnormal hormonal 
things should make you think that, that the child may possibly have a brain tumor. So are these generally picked up though in childhood or are sometimes a tumor can kind of be so quiescent that someone can grow to adulthood with a tumor in their brain, not Mo knowing it? Most of the time these tumors are picked up in childhood. Um, and part of um, my mission when I, as I you know, take care of children with brain and spinal cord tumors is when I do education of like pediatric residents, I try to help them understand the signs and symptoms because these children come to their offices with the same complaints that all the other sick children so come to your office. So what's different? Um, what's different is it's how it's teaching them that, you know, if they have these symptoms, doing a good neurologic exam, trying to get the sick child who looks like they have the flu off the table. Can they walk? can, you know, how to do a quick cerebellar exam, how to, you know. So you're check, checking things like balance, all kinds of other things that might right. suggest and, more of a central nervous system And the other key is listen to the parent's story. If you really listen to the story, they often give you the diagnosis. So let's get to treatment because I don't want to run out of time. We've said in the beginning that it's more hopeful, the treatments are more successful. Tell us about treatment today. So treatment varies depending on the type of tumor. So first we'll start with these children with the low-grade tumors. That's half of the patients that I see. And what I tell parents when their child has a low-grade tumor is that not to look at this as a cancer, but more as a chronic problem. My goals of treatment are to help their child grow up and have the best neurologic outcome that they have. We um, have learned a lot about these tumors biologically. We know that Despite the fact they look really bland under the microscope, they actually are amenable to many chemotherapy drugs. And now new biologic drugs are coming as, as we understand the pathways. Back when I started in the early 90s, we used to use a lot of radiation therapy. Radiation therapy is helpful for making them not grow for several years, but the long-term outcomes are um, devastating. So in now, radiation therapy has taken very much a back burner for the low-grade tumors. So you're using largely chemotherapy? We use chemotherapy. And chemotherapy has short-term risk, but as far as long-term risks and helping the child to grow up to be healthy, it actually is um, better. Is surgery ever considered? Surgery is considered. So if tumors are in part of the part of the brain um, where they can be completely removed, that is actually the, the treatment of choice. So... In terms of children's needs here in Central New York, you've just come as the new division chief and professor of hematology oncology for the Cancer Center, and you've brought with you a lot of new expertise, I'm sure. Are all of these um, treatment options now available to children here in Central New York? Yes, we have the capability of treating children with a variety of different types of brain tumors. Um, we have a very good multidisciplinary team. We have pediatric neurosurgery. We have radiation therapists with expertise in children. We have excellent um, facilities in both neurosurgery and radiation therapy. And by our um, interactions with the Children's Oncology Group, we have access to clinical trials for those children who have the cancerous tumors um, so that ch children can come here and get state-of-the-art treatment. But also, I bring expertise where I've um, formed a nice network, and I, the neuro-oncology network is small. We all know each other, and we're all very happy to talk to each other about our cases. Well, we're so happy you've joined us, and thank you so much for coming in and sharing all this with us. It's, it seems to me that it's a much, even though initially you pointed out that it's not that hopeful because it really does, when a child becomes, you know, a, a cancer 
patient, it, there's a really great loss potential there. But it sounds like we're doing a much better job in saving these lives. We are doing a much better job. Thank you so much. My guest has been Dr. Melanie Comito, Professor and Division Chief of Pediatrics and of Hematology Oncology at Upstate Golisano Children's Hospital and Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. your family safe from hazards during the holiday season. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen along with you. Holidays are exciting but hectic times. But some festive items or products like seasonal plants, some ornaments and alcoholic beverages are potentially dangerous for young children. Here with some safety tips that can help keep your holiday safe and joyful is Michelle Kaliva. She's a registered nurse and the administrator director of the Upstate New York Poison Center. Welcome, Michelle. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. I always enjoy all of your helpful information. So what do we have to know and what do we have to do from a safety standpoint when it comes to the holidays? I mean, just in an overview, and then I want to get into specifics. I think the first thing that, that we have to be aware of is that the holidays are so hectic and there's a change in our routine. Whenever there's a change in routine, there's a potential for particularly small children, but it could be anyone, to get into some dangerous situations. The oversight isn't there. We get busy. We take shortcuts. We're distracted. We're distracted, yeah. So let's begin with kind of the beginning of this holiday or our holidays, whether they be Thanksgiving or Christmas or <clears throat> New Year's. We Let's talk about food preparation because obviously that's an area that everyone's involved in and there are hazards to be known about. What are, what are some of the concerns? Absolutely. During the course of Thanksgiving, we will get numerous uh, calls that day about... At the know, Poison Center. At the Poison Center about, you know, what to do about our turkey. So you have to follow the directions. You really want to make sure that you are cooking your turkey to uh, the proper temperature. There, so a food thermometer is a helpful thing. Absolutely. Absolutely need it. And there are hotlines that you can call. You can call us, but you really need to be mindful of that. But also in preparing it, you have the, the raw turkey out on your counter you need to make sure that you're, you know, you're using a separate cutting board for your raw turkey versus your, your vegetables. And the hazard there is what? It's salmonella poisoning. It's, it's GI symptoms, but it's, it's the terrible symptoms. It's nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. It will make you sick for a couple of days and totally mess up your holidays. So some safety precautions can really prevent that. And salmonella also can cause problems with people who have heart, potential heart problems. I mean, it can be much more serious than just a GI disturbance. Absolutely. So it's very important. How about thawing your turkey? I mean, the actual preparation, many of us get frozen turkeys to start with. Right. And you're supposed to really thaw it in your refrigerator, not in a bowl of hot water on your or even on your countertop. You want to make sure that you bring it down to the right temperature, not get it overheated so that you're introducing bacteria. 
And when you handle raw meat or even fish, it says don't use the same utensils or plates. Um, and make sure after you've handled that that you walk with your hands. Oh, you have to wash your hands for all reasons. Washing your hands for that reason, but also concurrent with the holidays is is it's flu and cold season. So you really, as as the food preparer, need to make sure you wash your hands often through the course of your day. So what about after? So yeah. you've had your turkey and you've got your leftovers. What are the key things to remember in terms of, you know, storage of your food? As tempting as it would be to just linger and leave it all out and pick on it through the day, that's not a good idea. Once you have finished your meal, it really, your food needs to be covered and refrigerated. And, and you're not going to keep it for a week. Within a couple of days, you need to use up those leftovers. And the point is that left out, you can bacteria develop and you truly can have food poisoning. Absolutely. Secondary to that. One other question that came up is I, I think sometimes... People think that if their food, if they, you know, it doesn't look so good anymore, give it to the dog. I mean, you know, they they figure it's not quite safe for human consumption. We'll give it to our dog or or what have you. Obviously, that's just as dangerous as giving it to another person. And dogs actually have very delicate GI tracts. They can they can get sick very very quickly from the same bacteria that we do. So it's it's crucially important. Let's go to gifts. What is important to know? in terms of the safety issues around gifts, where can you run into problems? Yeah, so again, sadly, like to think of, of gift giving as being happy, but we do encounter, again, at the Poison Center, some pretty sad situations around gift giving. For example, um, buying a chemistry set for an older child and not watching when the younger child goes and actually ingests some of the chemicals that are in the chemistry sets. The button batteries, the lithium button batteries, are so dangerous if they are ingested. They can actually get swallowed and, and, and embed themselves into the lining of the esophagus or worse into the trachea. Really very, very dangerous. So you need to be mindful of, of who is in the household who's getting the, the gift. How about when you're out purchasing? Shouldn't you know what toys may have been recalled? I mean, and I guess there must be websites to go to, National Consumer Safety Pro Product Safety Board or something, to see that if, if the toys you're looking at possibly have had a recall. And, and actually, wasn't there a lot of hoopla in the last few years about toys coming from China, yes. that there was lead in the paint and all of that? So you really need to be up on that. How about you mentioned the giving a, a gift that's meant for an older child and having it out and around where younger children can gain access. But how about giving toys to children that are not necessarily age appropriate? Let's say Legos with these little tiny pieces to a two-year-old kind of thing. Yeah, very, very dangerous. I think it's important to know that, A, yes, there's there's numerous websites that will talk about recalls and, and, and safety concerns around toys. And the lead issue is certainly real. But in addition to that, when you buy a toy, it will tell you if it's age appropriate. You should follow those guidelines. You may have a very, very bright one and a half year old, but buying them a toy that you would get for a three year old puts them at risk. It has nothing to do with their cognitive abilities. It has to do with them knowing that a tiny piece shouldn't go in their mouth. And there's so many little, little pieces associated with the older children's type toy. So absolutely pay attention. Kids choke on little, tiny parts of toys. I also found something interesting when I was preparing to talk to you today, and that was there was a suggestion that you, when you select a gift for an older adult that they not be too heavy or too awkward to handle because that in and of itself could cause injury. And or they could, or they could trip. 
You know, you know, if you're going to buy them something, make sure that if you're buying them a, a pair of slippers, for example, make sure there's treads on them, that they're not too bulky and that they're going to fall. It's amazing the number of injuries that are associated with, with an, in an older person with those types of gifts. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with poison expert and safety expert Michelle Kaliva, and we're talking about how to keep your family safe from either accidental poisonings or injuries during the holidays. So let's go on to plants and decorations. I mean, I remember for the longest time people would say, beware the poinsettia. The poinsettia is a dangerous plant, and it's everywhere in the holidays. First of all, is that true? It's not. Um, a child would have to ingest the entire plant before we would even be concerned about toxicity. Not true with, with animals. They are toxic to, to animals. But... To children, they're they're fine. So let's talk about some of the other types of plants and and berries and and various things that are around on the holidays. Things like mistletoe, things like holly, um, boxwood. I guess sometimes people decorate with that. Are those poisonous? And yeah. to what degree? They are so to varying degrees depending <laughs> on the amount. Mistletoe, for example, might cause some GI symptoms, but if they took enough mistletoe berries or enough holly berries we'd send them into the emergency room they could have much more serious effects than just nausea and vomiting but then again i don't want to diminish nausea and vomiting in diarrhea in a small child because that puts them at risk for dehydration so yep holly berries and mistletoe really need to be high up and away from small children but even your Christmas tree poses a risk. While the, the needles may not be poisonous, they're a choking hazard. So if kids don't know and pick them up and eat it, it's going to get stuck in the back of their throat. I think that's crucially important to remember. How about things like the preservatives that you put in the Christmas tree? Is there any issue there? Sure, there's potential, again, depending on how much. But also people put aspirin into the bottom of their Christmas tree, and aspirin certainly is toxic to a child. So... Again, you would want to make sure your child is not around any of the additives or anything that you put into the bottom of the tree. How about ornaments? I mean, yeah. especially old kind of antique or heirloom ornaments that may have small pieces attached to them. What have you seen with that? Yep. So they break and kids eat the glass. That's a problem. If you go way back, there are even uh, lights that are lead-based, that the paint is lead-based. So there's a lead risk as well. Again, maybe not in, in your home, but maybe grandma's house or maybe great-grandma's house. I actually saw that lead can be found in some tree light mm -hmm. wires, so that's something to really know about. Um, how about things like icicles or tinsel? Again, choking hazards. Some of them are, um, some of them even have a glass-based component to it, but even the, the plastic kind, if ingested, could easily coat the back of their throat. So you were talking about, when you said the glass-based component, this angel the hair, angel which hair. is very popular. Yep. I don't know that people realize that it's finely spun glass. Yep. So can you also get cuts or irritation? Sure. It could be, if you think of a child's hand, they're very delicate, easily to, could irritate their skin surface. There are a couple of other things that, that strike me also that are always around on the holidays, things like candles, for example. So obviously, some. I mean, that seems like common sense, but... It seems to me that candles could really present a tremendous hazard. Sure, of course. They're obviously a fire hazard. Again, a small child's not going to know enough to not stick their finger in it. But also, some of the, um, along the line of candles, made me think of potpourri and the essential oils. They, too, can pose a problem. They can be an irritant if they're ingested, if they're swallowed. Some of them contain alcohol in them. So you have to be aware of all of it. The potpourri, potpourri can also be a choking hazard. 
So candles, potpourri, all of that way up high so that they can't reach it. And obviously, I would say not to go to bed with a candle burning. I mean, you know, despite the, the, the lovely atmosphere it creates, you're basically putting yourself potentially at risk. If that should burn down and what's supporting it is not sufficiently fireproof, you could, could burn through the mantle of your fireplace and their whole, your whole house could be ablaze. Or a fire in your fireplace, too. That's the other thing we tend to, to get a little bit... Um, casual about around the holidays, but you really don't want to go to sleep until that fire is out. So what about something like um, when you, you when guests, I mean, it's a time, the holidays are often a time when, you know, a grandma comes to visit or aunts and uncles come or cousins come. And so there's a lot of, as you mentioned in the beginning, a lot of tumult, a lot of, you know, kind of busyness and everybody's kind of, you know, enjoying, but everybody's kind of enjoying, but everybody's kind of distracted in a way watching little kids what are the things you want to remember in terms of relatives visiting in terms of safety whether relatives are visiting or not to, to pick on them because i'm one too or when you go to visit grandparents houses both ways the houses tend not to be childproof we tend to throw our purses on the ground we tend to maybe put a backpack or or our suitcase and in any of those could be our medications if you, if you are in medications, whether it's your house or whether you're visiting, you need to put them up in a way. Things like perfume and hand sanitizers that are in our purses both contain alcohol. Alcohol doesn't make children drunk, doesn't make them silly. It makes them profoundly hypoglycemic. They could potentially die from it. So any th- uh, coins, uh, pennies, quarters, nickels, whatever, children will put those in their mouth and, and choke an, uh, an aspirate on them. So you just have to be aware that suitcases... Purses shouldn't be on, on the ground level. Not within reach, and, Not within and things reach should be locked or put locked away. Up. How about this idea of, you mentioned alcohol having a toxic effect on children. How about the importance of emptying partially filled glasses of alcoholic beverages, not just leaving them out Right. when you're having you know, guests or what have you? The stories that we will get on the day on New Year's Day when from parents that will call and say, we had a party last night and we left just a little taste of of wine in a wine glass and our child got up before us and drank it. That's dangerous, that's that's risky. The other thing that, that contains alcohol that we sometimes forget is like extracts. So peppermint extracts, vanilla extracts. If you're baking and you have your children around, that's wonderful, but if they pick it up and swallow it, they're at risk for, um, actually with peppermint, they could actually burn the back of their throat. It's very irritating. Wow. Their mouth gets really hot, plus there's the alcohol. How about ashtrays? Now, I know we've had less and less people smoking, but we still have people smoking. Is that something very important to be cognizant of and emptying and making sure that that those are not within the reach of children as well? So three butts of a a cigarette is, is enough to send a child into an emergency room. Three quarters of a fresh cigarette is enough, and I need to caution people with the e-cigarettes. The liquid that's the liquid nicotine in the e-cigarettes is deadly. They need to keep that up and around uh, off off the um, child's reach as well. Well, in the little bit of time we have left, let's talk about our pets. Yeah. Because our pets, you did mention poinsettias are dangerous for pets. What other things should we be thinking about when it comes to our pets? Well, I worry greatly about chocolate. Chocolate and dogs are dangerous. Again, lots of calls around dogs getting into chocolate. It's actually deadly in dogs. But really anything. Dogs too can choke on on pieces of of um, from the tree or angel hair. angel hair or the tinsel. So 
If your dog gets into anything, there are a couple of different animal poison control hotlines. You can always call us as well, and if we can't help you, we'll refer you to one of the animal hotlines. Well, that's really, really helpful and very, very important for all of us to understand so we can keep the holidays happy for all of us and keep our families safe. And I thank you so much for going in. So basically, if you follow these kind of safety tips and safety rules, hopefully you can avoid any kind of disaster or problem during the holidays. Once again, Michelle, you're always full of very, very helpful information. My guest has been Michelle Kaliva. She's the Administrator Director of the Upstate New York Poison Center. And once again, thank you. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink On Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. Jordana Gilman is a third-year medical student who hopes to specialize in women's health. Her poem, She Says, He Says, Emily, is both an auditory and visual delight. Our radio listeners must imagine each stanza reflecting the three speakers who are talking in parallel but not connected conversations. Here is She Says, He Says, Emily. I hope you'll see that the overall effect of this poem insists on our human connection. Overheard in the hospital gift shop, overheard in the clinic office, on the phone with my friend Emily. She was born on my bathroom floor, she says, He's been trying to die since the day he was born, he says. They found the cancer last night, Emily says. My granddaughter, my patient, my friend. And her mother, my daughter, and his mother, my patient's mother, and my mother, Emily says. She couldn't take care of her. She couldn't not take care of him. She's coming to town to take care of me. My daughter was two months shy of her 18th birthday, a child herself. His mother won't let him die. He defines her existence, her purpose. My mother is quitting her job to take care of me. The girl is five years old now. The boy is four years old now. I'm 24 years old now. Five years of calling me mama. Four years of dying already done. 24 years of just the two of us. I have custody now, admitted and discharged time and again, single mom and only child together through it all. She doesn't really know the difference. He doesn't really understand the suffering. She must be in denial about what this really means. But she still feels the pain. But he still feels the pain. But she still feels the pain. And my daughter, she lives at home again. And my patient? He's in the hospital again, and my mother is sitting next to me while I get chemo again. It's unclear, it's unclear, it's unclear, if she'll ever be ready for her life, if dying is better than dead, if this will cure me or kill me. But who knows, but mama knows best, but I know my mom will be here.
you for joining us for HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Join us again next week when we revisit the concept of altruistic organ donation and how it's saving lives today. If you'd like to listen again to this week's show, you can find a podcast of it on iTunes. Just search for HealthLink on Air. That's all one word. And to keep up with all the goings-on at Upstate, you can find us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, or why not check out the What's Up at Upstate blog? That's at upstate.edu slash what's up. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.